All right, if you want, uh, turn to Luke chapter 22. We're going to look through verses 66 through 71, hopefully. 66 through 70. Uh, nope, 66 through 70. Oh, I see what you're saying. All right, quiet down in the peanut gallery. So in Luke chapter 22, 66, we're continuing to look at the trial of Jesus. So let's uh, go ahead and read this passage. And it says here in uh, Luke uh, 22, verse 66, And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. And they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. Lord God in heaven, we come now to you, Lord, as we look at this passage and we pray for your blessing upon this time. As we study your word, as we see your son uh, standing before these wicked men being unjustly charged and unjustly tried. Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that we would take from it uh, lessons that you would have us uh, learn, uh, that we might be able to apply it to our life, be encouraged in our own faith, and also be able to edify others. We thank you and we praise you, Father, uh, for the Lord and what he went through on our behalf. I pray, Lord, we never take that for granted. I pray, Lord, that we always, always will be grateful for what he has done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, as I had uh, remarked in our last lesson... You know, there's different phases in the Lord's trial. And if you read anything about it, you know, they'll try to break all of that down. But uh, for me, there are at least three stages uh, to the Lord's trial uh, that kind of correspond to three aspects of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And uh, these three things that Luke bring up, I believe, are direct attacks against um, against the Lord's person himself that the, the power of darkness are, are, are um, you know, bringing about. And uh, if you remember in our last lesson, I said that in the Old Testament, there were uh, three uh, prominent offices, if you will, uh, allocated by God to his chosen men. You had the prophet and you have the priest and you had the king. And the, and the priest, of course, was the go-between. Uh, he was the one who was the mediator between God and man. He was the one who offered up prayers uh, for the congregation. He was the one that uh, uh, made offerings uh, for the sinner. And then, of course, you have the king, and he was the ruler, the governor. He was the uh, uh, he was the one that uh, was in charge of protecting God's people, safeguarding uh, God's people. And then you had the prophet, and the prophet was the divinely chosen messenger of God. And often uh, with the prophet, uh, we talk about this, uh, uh, um, there were signs and wonders. And the, and the reason for the signs and wonders uh, was to prove to God's people that, yes, indeed, this man is my man that I'm sending to you, and these miracles miracles that he's performing is uh, proof that he is, you know, he is speaking uh, in my authority. And so as we looked at the first stage of the Lord's trial, uh, I brought up that the powers of darkness were um, uh, attacking his uh, prophetic 
office, uh, that the religious leadership rejected Jesus as the prophet uh, spoken of by Moses himself. Um, This is one of the controversies that the leadership had with Jesus, is that they did not hold Jesus as a prophet sent by God. And in fact, if you might remember, uh, who did they credit with giving Jesus the power to commit all these miracles? It wasn't God, was it? Who was it? It was Beelzebub. They were claiming that Jesus was in league with the devil, therefore saying that Jesus, you know, was coming. He wasn't sent by God. He was, he was sent by the devil. And so they rejected what the people recognized in, in Jesus, is that he was that prophet, the one that uh, Moses spoke about. In Deuteronomy 18.15, this is Moses, he says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet. And if you look in your Bible, that word prophet, has a capital P uh, from the midst of thee and of thy brethren like unto me unto him uh, ye shall hearken. So Moses all that time in the past said there's going to come a prophet capital P prophet who is like unto me who's going to come to you and, and, and you will hear him. Now I didn't share this in the last lesson because I wanted to emphasize you know what exactly it was that these uh, religious leadership was rejecting in Jesus but uh, you know in many ways Jesus was like unto Moses that uh, the people should have recognized and especially the leadership should have recognized about Jesus. Uh, both Moses and Jesus uh, were born during a time when uh, the chosen people of God uh, was under oppression uh, due to a, a foreign uh, power. Uh, of course, in Moses' day, it would be Egypt. And of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ's day, uh, it would be Rome. Uh, both of these uh, individuals, Moses and Jesus Christ, were born if you remember when a king uh, gave the order to have all the male children destroyed, right? That's what Pharaoh told the midwives of, of, the, of the Israelites. If it's a male child, kill it. You remember what Herod the Great wanted to do? Yeah, he wanted to wipe out all the male children in Bethlehem because that's where he was told that the, the king was to be born. So he sent his soldiers and he killed all the little baby boys there in Bethlehem. Uh, both uh, Moses and Jesus were sent by God after a period of 400 years of what heavenly inactivity uh, Israel was 400 years under the bondage to Egypt right and so God sent Moses to, to the children of Israel after 400 years and from the prophet Malachi to the time when John the Baptist showed up there was 400 years of silence so in both cases with Moses and Jesus it was after 400 years that they were uh, of supposed inactivity from God of course we know God is always watching over his people but after this silence uh, both Jesus and Moses were sent both Moses and Jesus were sent to deliver the oppressed and deliver the prisoner, right? Moses, the children of Israel under bondage of Egypt, and the Lord, those who are under the bondage of sin and death. So they were both sent to, to deliver an oppressed people. Both performed miracles under the authority of God. Uh, both provided bread for the people. 
right? Uh, the manna from heaven, and then of course the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, uh, both gave up riches to do God's will. That's what Hebrews says about Moses, that he gave up you know, all of that uh, prestige, all of that glory of Egypt in order to serve the Lord. And the Lord himself, what did he do? He stepped out of glory, took upon himself the form of a servant for our behalf. Uh, both uh, instituted a blood covenant that brought forgiveness and remission of sin. Of course, Moses with the Passover lamb, and of course, Jesus Christ, who is the Passover lamb. And then finally, in Exodus 32, Moses was willing to sacrifice his own life uh, for God to spare the people. Because if you remember, God was wanting to wipe the people out, and Moses said, no, don't do that. If you're going to wipe them out, you might as well wipe me out too. And that's what Jesus did. He came and offered himself uh, to uh, bring atonement and forgiveness uh, to, um, to a rebellious race of men. So that's just a few things. There's, there, there's like 20 or 30 different likes between Moses and, and Jesus. So this is something that the religious leadership should have picked up on. If they, if they were paying attention. And, but yet they weren't because they rejected Jesus as that prophet, um, that Moses spoke about. Alright, so they, they didn't want anything to do with that. Now come to the second stage of his, um, trial. And it's what I call, um, and there may have been a better way to put this, defaming his person. Um, mocking his person. And what they were doing in this second stage is, is they were mocking his, his, who he was, who he was as a son of God. All right. That's what they were doing. They were, uh, they were defaming his exalted person as, as a son of God. You know, there were two matters about Jesus that the Jews simply could not stomach. Turn to John chapter 5. There were two matters about Jesus that the Jews simply had great, great issue with. One of those issues was how Jesus observed the Sabbath. They thought he was violating the Sabbath. They thought that he was, you know, spoiling the Sabbath. In reality, it was these men who had turned the Sabbath into a burden with all of their rules and their regulations, you know. Uh, you could only do this, and you couldn't do that, and you had to wash your fingers with an eggshell f- uh, filled with water. I mean, just, just ridiculous rules about the Sabbath. And so they were constantly in contention with Jesus concerning the Sabbath. The second thing that uh, they took issue with was Jesus claiming to be the son of God. And that was the second thing that they were taking issue with Jesus. One, the Sabbath, and one, that he was the son of God. So if you're here in John chapter 5, take a look here starting in verse 14. This is uh, the man who had the infirmity, uh, what was it, 38 years and he was by that pool of Bethsaida, and he was waiting for the water to be stirred, and Jesus came and healed him. Anyway, in John 5:14, we read, 
Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple, the man that he healed, and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole, sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus, because the Jews asked him before, Who did this? Who was it that did this? And so he went and told them. So it says, and he told the Jews it was Jesus, that it was Jesus which made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him. Here's number one, because he had done what? He had done these things on the Sabbath day. All right, so there's stomach ache number one. He shouldn't have done that on the Sabbath day. And then... Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father worketh hitherto and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him. Why? Because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. There's the two issues that the Jews had with Jesus. According to John's gospel, it's after this incident of healing the man by the pool that the Jews uh, began to plot Jesus' death. And in fact, if you read through the gospel of John from this point on, that's what you continually run into is the Jews plotting Jesus' death because they not only considered Jesus a lawbreaker in regards to the Sabbath, but he was also guilty of possibly the highest crime of all, and that was blasphemy. Claiming to be equal with God, claiming to be the Son of God. So these men here in Luke's Gospel, who were trying Jesus in their Sanhedrin court, in their own minds, they had already condemned Jesus. As far as they were concerned, Jesus was worthy of death. The only thing that they needed was a confession from Jesus' own mouth uh, that would provide these men with a just so-called legal cause to have Jesus put to death. Now notice that Luke mentions here in uh, chapter 22, as soon as it was day, uh, this this coming of daylight um, in the mind of this Sanhedrin court uh, now makes it legal in in, in their minds. What they had illegally started at night in his arrest and bringing him this pre-trial that he had and these guys slapping him around all of that was illegal all of that was illegal but when the sun had come up over the horizon then all the elders and all the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadduceans they all came together and what they did was is they hastily gathered together a court of in quotation marks, law, court of law, so that they could officially condemn Jesus. So that they could officially condemn Jesus. And this is known as the Sanhedrin court. They were the rulers. They were the judges. And even according to their own rules, no session of this Jewish council was considered legal unless it happened in daylight, everything that happened at night was illegal. And really, in any just court of law, whatever took place prior to this would be, what's the word, impermissible, not allowed. But yet they went ahead and did it anyway. They went ahead and did it anyway. And so what they needed 
to have a legal um, reason to condemn Jesus was to have Jesus say something that would condemn him. That's what they needed. That's what they needed. And so what these men did was, is they brought these witnesses to bring a charge against Jesus in the pretrial, all right, at night when they had him arrested. So they brought these witnesses to try to find some charge that they could condemn Jesus with. But the problem with these witnesses was they couldn't get their stories to agree. They couldn't get their stories to agree. Mark 14, 55 and 56, and the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. So therefore Jesus was guilty before proof, or is that right? Guilty before, or well, whatever. In their minds he was already guilty, right? Um, Verse 56, for many bear false witness against him. But their witness agreed not together. How frustrating it must have been for these wicked men to bring these guys in and their stories didn't even jive. How frustrating it must have been for these guys. They couldn't even get their story straight. Finally, two of the false witnesses kind of got their stories halfway straight about uh, the temple, what Jesus said about the temple being torn down and another temple not made with hands being built. Uh, Mark fourteen fifty seven. And there arose certain and bare false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. So even these guys couldn't get their story straight. Uh, they completely misunderstand Jesus' words, but they twisted Jesus' words words to suit uh, their end, to to suit their means. Now let me tell you something, guys, and I know you know this. You may have even run into people like this. Hopefully you're not this kind of a person. But there are people in this world who will make you out to be what they want you to be. Let me say that again. It's kind of confusing, isn't it? There are people in this world who will make you out to be what they need you to be, would probably be a better way to put it. In other words, if they need to be, if they need you to be wrong, or if they need you to appear to be evil, then what they will do is they will twist the facts of the truth to fit that need. You understand what I'm saying? We, we see this all the time. We see this all the time. This whole religious crowd, the ones who were to uphold the law, uh, they were doing this very thing. Uh, not only were they violating their own rules of council procedure, but more specifically... Uh, to their own destruction, they were transgressing the very law that they claimed to be the guardians of. Exodus 20:16, what does it say? Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. 
Deuteronomy 5.20 Neither shalt thou bear false witness against thy neighbor. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Bearing false witness according to the law of Moses is a very serious offense. So much so that if the one who is bearing false witness they could face a death penalty because of bearing false witness. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 19, starting in verse 15. I'm going to read all the way down to verse 19. This is the law of witness. He says here, uh, verse 15, One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity, or for any sin, and any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. And behold, if the witnesses be a false witness and have testified falsely against his brother... Look here. Then shall you do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you. So you can clearly see here that being a false witness is a very serious offense of God's sense of justice. And in the case of these men who were bringing false witness before Jesus for a cause to put him to death, because of that false witness, they themselves were worthy of death. They themselves were worthy of death. And the Sanhedrin court was also worthy of death in their violation because instead of cross-examining these witnesses, what did they do? They condoned the false witness. So they were just as guilty and just as condemned. God takes false witnessing very, very seriously. In fact, in in Proverbs 6.16, if you want to know what God hates... He lists this out for you in, in Proverbs 16, 16. In fact, false witness is one of those things that God finds abhorrent. He absolutely despises it. Proverbs 16, 6, or 6, 16 says, These six things does the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imagination, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. So to lie or falsely testify against another in order to bring about an injustice upon them or an injury upon them, in God's eyes... This is abhorrent. He hates that. He despises that. He despises that. Jesus himself talked about uh, this in Matthew 15, 18 through 20. He says, uh, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. 
For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, uh, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands defileth not a man. These were defiled men operating from defiled hearts, speaking defiling words against the Lord. Now what would you call this? Is this not a form of blasphemy? Sure it is. They were blaspheming the person and character of God's only son. And this is something else that's interesting about this type of person. The very thing that they will condemn you on will be the very thing that they are guilty of themselves. We see that a lot too. The very thing they'll condemn you on, the very thing that they condemn Jesus with, is the very thing that they were guilty of themselves. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. This this dishonoring of the Son is equivalent to dishonoring the Father. That's what Jesus said in John 5, 22 and 23. He says, For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. So in their defaming and dishonoring Jesus, they were defaming and dishonoring the Father. Those who bear false witness or spread slanderous falsehood about others, according to the word of God, they're in league with the wicked one. Exodus 23.1 says, Thou shalt not raise a false report. He says, Put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. So when you're bearing false witness, or if anyone is, I shouldn't say you, if anyone is bearing false witness, they're in league with the wicked one. Those who lie about others will also prove to be willing to do violence to others. Proverbs 27.12 says, Deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. If you're going to lie about somebody to do them injury, chances are you'll take that next step and actually do that injury. I shouldn't say you. I'm sorry about that. But someone like that, that, that kind of frame of mind. They're wicked people. I mean, how often has there been a discord in churches among believers because someone in the church is spreading a falsehood about somebody else? You know, they may have offended them, or they may not have, you know, they may have done some wrong to them. So instead of going to that person and the person apologizing, making th- instead of doing, what do they do? They're busy in the church. Hey, you know, so and so is no good, and let me tell you why. Is that good for a church? You don't want to be a part of that. One, you don't want to be that person. And two, you don't want to be the person to listen to it. Because just like the Sanhedrins, if you listen to it, you're just as guilty. You need to shut it down. You need to shut it down. So slander and falsehoods that's, and false witnessing, that's, that's serious in the eyes of God. In fact, God 
Remember, uh, what was that old saying, uh, that phrase a while back? Weapons of mass destruction. That's how God views slander and, and false witnessing. Proverbs 25, 18. A man that beareth false witness against his neighbor is a maul and a sword and a sharp arrow. You can do a lot of damage bearing false witness. A lot of damage. A ball. That makes me think of a split ball. Yeah, like what you split wood and stuff. Yeah, it's 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 destructive. It's destructive. It's um it's little it's little really little wonder then that God um despises a false witness because of the possible irreparable damage that a false witness can do. You know, one of the one of the most fragile things that we all possess is our reputation. Is our good name. And all it takes is one person, one slanderous person, one false witness to shatter that reputation. Whether it's true or not. And to gather all the pieces of that reputation is impossible. It really is. It's impossible because there always there's always going to be somebody out there who's going to believe the false report. There always will. So don't don't go there. Don't be that person. You know, when it comes to evil and wickedness, there's no boundaries. If they're going to assault the very Son of God, do you think you're going to be immune? It's terrible. It's terrible stuff. Some have murdered out of passion. Some steal because of a great need. But to bear false witness against someone who's innocent or against someone that you don't like or against someone that you've got something against, that's a special wickedness in the eyes of God. That's a special wickedness in the eyes of God. You know, all these men, all these false accusers, uh, they were fulfilling scripture. There were two or three witnesses, right? <laughs> but there's a right way and a wrong way to fulfill scripture, isn't there? And we always want to fulfill scripture in our life in the, in the right way. Not this way. Not this way. So even in the matter of the temple, they couldn't get their story straight. And they, they couldn't get anything uh, to find uh, fault with Jesus because of these false, false witnesses. So uh, with the coming of morning, these wicked men who were trying to pass a sentence on, of death on Jesus, uh, they were becoming desperate. Uh, they were. They were becoming desperate. They, time, well, let's see here. Time wasn't so much running out for Jesus as it was running out for these wicked men. Because daybreak was coming. And soon the city would be awake. And soon the people would be out in the streets. And soon the people would be gathering around the temple looking for Jesus. Right? And if he wasn't there, then they're going to start inquiring. Where is he? Where is he? Do you know where he's at? You... Well, he was falsely arrested. 
He's being falsely tried. So time was running out for these men. So they were getting, they were getting dis- desperate. These men were hoping to make short work of Jesus and have the deed done before anybody could do anything about it. Upstanding citizens these guys were. So in frustration and desperation and under pressure, the high priest steps forth and he says here in verse 67, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. They knew the answer he was going to give. They knew the answer. They, had, they knew what he said about himself. They weren't in the dark about this. They had to hear it from his mouth in this legal counsel so that they could levy the charge of blasphemy on him, which is worthy of death. That's what they were looking for. In Matthew's uh, gospel, I think it's 27, I might be wrong. Uh, the high priest says, I adjure thee by the living God to tell us whether thou art the Christ. So he's placing Jesus under an oath. Now, according to passages like Exodus 22:11, Numbers chapter 5, 19 through 22, 1 Kings 8:31, uh, technically an oath was allowed in the law of Moses in, in this regard. Because this oath gave the accused the opportunity to declare their innocence under oath. So this was something that was written in the law of Moses for the accused who was falsely charged. And it permitted, it permitted them to declare their innocence under oath. And if you know anything about Jewish law... When you made a vow or an oath, that was very serious business. And so if a person was innocent, a person of integrity, if they would make such an oath, then, you know, that oath was binding. Yes, I'm innocent of the charges. But the oath that the high priest had placed Jesus under was cleverly worded. And it was to force Jesus between two alternatives. One, Jesus would deny himself, no, I'm not the Christ. Now, what are the chances that he would have done that? None. Or, he would speak the truth and say, yes, I am the Christ. Ah, there it is. Blasphemy. He's worthy of death. So you see the cleverness here of this wicked man putting Jesus, adjure thee by the living God. Again, we see the, pers- the perversion of the law to suit a wicked purpose. Now, it's interesting that these Pharisees and these Sadducees, under any other environment, uh, there would always be contention, always arguing. But in the matter of their collective hatred of Jesus... They came together on this. And you'll see that too. You'll see, you'll see factions who are normally enemies toward one another. When it comes to Jesus or Christianity, they'll unite together. They'll unite together. These men were sharp enough to know that the charge of blasphemy leveled against Jesus when they brought them before Rome, because that was their next step, that would not have held any weight. 
Because even Caesar claimed he was God, right? So that wouldn't have held any weight. So they had to come up with something that would be, what's the word? Seditious? Like against Rome? Like he was going to plot to overthrow Rome's power? That's what they needed. And so they found their cause to put Jesus to death. And what they did uh, was um, take his own words, which was truth, and use his own words to condemn him. Boy, haven't we seen that too. Haven't we seen that too. But this has been the tactic of the enemy for a long time. They have an ability to bend reality into a lie and distort truth to accommodate evil. So Jesus already knew where he stood with these men. He spoke nothing but the truth to these men. These men have already proven their hostility toward Jesus in the past. But to me, it's kind of interesting when Jesus answered them. This, you know, I, I kind of noodled on this for a little bit. Look here at Luke 22, verse 67. He said unto them, I tell you, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. So he knew where he stood with these men. But then he says this. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Isn't that kind of a weird answer to their question? What in the world? What in the world is he talking about here? What does he? What does he mean by this? Well, what Jesus is making a reference to is that passage found in Daniel chapter seven, verses thirteen through fourteen, where the one who is like unto the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and receives the kingdom and the power and the authority of the kingdom. That's what he's talking about. And so um, that's what he's saying here. He says, hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. So I'm thinking, okay, Lord, what is it that you're saying here? Because he really doesn't give them at this time a direct answer. Yes, I am the Christ. But he does give him an answer from the word of God. So what, what is he doing here? What is he saying to these men? Well, this is my thought. You can agree with it or not, but this is my thought on this. I believe that by Jesus quoting from Daniel about the Son of Man receiving the kingdom, I believe Jesus was putting these men on notice. Telling these men that from this point, because you're not going to believe in me, because you're not going to listen to me, because you're not going to let me go, be it known... From this point on, from this point on, you are dealing with a divine Son of Man associated with God's authority and God's power and God's glory. And though you are now permitted to sit in judgment on me because this is your hour, be it known that one day... As the Son of Man, I will sit in judgment on you. I think that's what he's saying. Fellas, you've crossed the line. 
from now on, you are dealing with the Son of Man who will receive the kingdom. And when that day comes for you to be judged, it will not go well for you. It will not go well for you. As their prisoner, he says only what they need to hear. As their judge, he will one day say what they will fear to hear. Depart from me. I never knew you. I think that's what he's telling them. I think he's telling these guys, you've crossed the line. From now on, you're dealing with the Son of Man, who will sit in judgment of you. Now, whether or not these men caught it, I don't think. Um, I think they missed this warning shot. I think they missed what he was saying to them. But they did pick up on the reference of the Son of Man. And so they pursued in verse 70. Notice what it says here in Luke twenty-two seventy. 70. Then said they all, so collectively, all of them, not just the high priest, but all of them, art thou then the Son of God? See, they caught on to what he was saying. Art thou then the Son of God? Notice what he says. He said unto them, ye say that I am. And then they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. They knew that what Jesus was implying. They just didn't catch the gravity of what he was saying to them. And so based upon that implication, they asked him, Art thou then the Son of God? Now some folks have trouble with Jesus' answer. Ye say that I am. Especially your Jehovah Witnesses who deny that uh, Jesus is God anyway. And they'll say, well, Jesus didn't say that he was, he was God here. He said that, uh, well, you said it, not me type of thing. Well, that's not what it means. It's not what it means. Uh, if you look at Mark's gospel, this very same thing is going on. In Mark fourteen sixty one, it says, But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That's pretty clear. I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And there again, there's that same Admonition, okay guys, from now on, you're dealing with the authority. And one day you'll face that authority. So clear, also, what was the Jews' reaction in Luke? What was their reaction when he said, you say that I am? Yes! Yeah, he said he's the son of God! And they got all upset. They understood what he was saying. They understood he was saying, yes, I am the Son of God. Why else would they react that way? Why else would they react that way? So the blasphemers condemned Jesus to the very thing they were guilty of, and that is blasphemy. And that's how the wicked uh, has always operated in in accusing the righteous, and accusing the righteous of the very transgression that they're guilty of. You know, 
Uh, those who claim so-and-so is committing treason, uh, they themselves are committing treason. Uh, those who claim so-and-so is a liar, uh, they themselves are a liar. And that's the way it, that's the way it is with, with the wicked. And this is what the serpent had done in the garden so long ago. Uh, he accused God of lying to Eve when he himself was the liar. Yea, as God said. What was he doing there? He was casting doubt in Eve's mind about the veracity, the truth that God said. So in effect, the lying serpent was accusing God of being a liar. Jesus spoke the truth about himself being the son of God and they took this truth and laid upon him the charge of blasphemy. They rejected Jesus as the prophet sent by God uh, as Moses had prophesied and now they were defaming his person as the son of God, committing blasphemy, committing blasphemy. Now with this confession... Uh, these men were satisfied and so they were clear to do the next step and that was to bring Jesus to uh, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate because they didn't have the right to put someone to death and so they were going to go to Pontius Pilate and they were going to use their manipulative tactics on Pontius Pilate so they could get a civil charge laid against Jesus to have him crucified so just one step closer so in closing and we'll look at that next week God willing um, now let's take let's think about the events that we have here Uh, with Peter we saw a man who succumbed under pressure his faith was was tried and he denied the Lord he repented Peter was an object of, of the Lord's grief and pity. You have the high priest's servants who, due to their brutal ignorance, uh, slapped Jesus around, you know, showing contempt for, for him as a, as a prophet. Because remember, that's what they mocked him of. Prophesy unto us. Who, who, who hit you? Who hit you? But what condemned the nation of Israel was the attitude of the leadership motivated by their hatred uh, displayed by a total total disregard of, for justice and the law because they wanted to destroy Jesus that's what condemned this nation Proverbs 29.18 says where there is no vision the people perish when the leadership of a nation fails to esteem God's law and goes about corrupting its own laws to advance a wicked agenda how long do you think that nation will last? Not very long. In fact, that nation is doomed to perish. You can read throughout history of nations who have done this very thing 
where the leadership of the nation has forsaken God's law, has twisted its own laws to suit their own wicked agenda, oppressing the righteous, promoting evil in the land, only to have that nation judged. For that nation that rejects God, perverts justice, what other recourse does, does God have but to send judgment? We need to pray for our nation because I think that's where we're at in our own nation's history. Now I know the Antichrist is coming and all this is working together, but we're still exhorted to pray for our leadership. So we need to pray for our leadership. We need to pray for our leadership. So in our next lesson, we're going to look at um, the leadership rejecting the king. Rejecting the king. When, he, when they bring him before uh, Pontius Pilate. Father in heaven, um, you know, your word is so wonderful and so rich, so full of...